Welcome to the Mind Body Business Podcast. Have you ever considered your superpower? If you had one gift to leave with humanity, what would that be? We believe that everyone possesses a superpower. This is your value proposition, your je ne sais quoi to help make a tangible difference in the world. Each week, our show explores these superpowers with tantalizing thought seeds germinating only from the power of collective thought. We invite you to join us for one hour each week and listen in as we dispense superpower knowledge from great people doing greater things. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Mind Body Business Podcast. It's nice of you to grace me here in Charlotte this week. I know. Came all the way up. So I don't know if you're prepared for this, but um, do you remember John Leaf? He was on, we had him scheduled way back in the day while you were getting all that busy work done in your house and you had the flood in the bathroom, yada, mm-hmm, yada, yada. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this is the gentleman that we had to cancel on. Um, but I was excited to get him back on. So Shy was able to work with his schedule to get him back in here. And his name is John Leaf. And he's got about 15 degrees from Harvard's and Yale's and Tufts. But I would like to throw in that he went to Tufts, which was right next door to my school. So I'm slightly intelligent. Trinity mm, College. That so. doesn't transfer over. Sorry. <laughs> and perfect timing for the podcast today. I've been missing my science shirt for how long? A long time. I think and, you were accusing my daughter of stealing it on you, Ben. And when John comes in, I'm going to show it to him. He can see it right now because he's back there in the green room getting his hair and makeup did. But, um, John, this shirt literally has been missing for about a year, and I was blaming her daughter because she always steals my shirts, and I found it. And here it is, just in honor of your show today. So um, anyhow, let's talk about John for a second. Before we do that, you had a, you wanted to bring us up to speed in some nonsense you have going on in your life. You're doing big things. People yeah. want to hear about you. What's <laughs> Nobody on? wants to hear about me. Oh, my gosh. No, we're doing some really exciting things, though. We were connecting with some really smart people. Actually, one client that we have just helped launch went to Harvard and Yale. So maybe John knows her. Maybe she should come on here and have a conversation I with John. No. But nobody would understand it. They would be speaking their own language. And She's a PhD. Us. He's an MD. So let's have a combat to see who's smarter. Um, he's got like four or five MDs. Yeah. And I mean, a book to prove it. Yeah. And he's an author now. Yeah. All right. Did you want to bring anything else that you want to say before I put you on? No, let's get going because I think John's got a lot to teach us okay. today. So John Leaf is his name and he is – he wrote a book called The Secret Language of Sales. And, I, and I've read the book. Uh, It took me a bit to get through because, A, it's big, and I'm a slow reader. Um, But one of the things I loved about his book is, you know, I'm fascinated by science, and I'm fascinated in all those things that I didn't go to school for. And um, he talks a lot about the conversations that are going on inside of our bodies that I think – let me see if I can paraphrase this properly. So I think a lot of people think sort of one-dimensionally, hey, here's our physical shell, and then inside we've got blood moving around and some organs and some hearts beating and that sort of stuff. But nobody really understands how everything works because we're not scientists. But even beyond that level, he's taken the scientific understanding of what goes on in our bodies, and he's broken it down to these – normalized conversations that people like us can have to better understand it. And throughout his book, he, he goes into some serious in-depth con, uh, concepts and cellular, cellular mitochondria. And I'm pulling up this so I can sound like I'm smart, but um, the, at the crux of it all is that everything going on inside of our bodies are having these conversations, these intelligent conversations on how to actually run this fantastic specimen that we've all been given. And they're not just random accidents, you know, from, mm-hmm. 
from how blood works to how the brain centers of tissue to the gut biome to all the different things in the communication with our brain and all the different things. They're in this constant dialogue that sort of gives this intelligent meaning to them as opposed to just these organs that are operating autonomously. And, they're, and, and while they are operating autonomously, I think I'm saying this correctly, that's almost sort of a misnomer because they're not autonomous. They're they're intelligently operating, sort of like we think we are on a day-to-day basis. So that's John's book. Did I say that okay? It sounded spectacular. I'm really excited to hear about this. And one thing that you said, because I was a little bit um, scared about this podcast, because I'm like, I'm not going to understand anything he says. And you said the book was very readable and understandable. He brought it down to a level that you could understand. Yeah. He's fantastic. Hey, John, welcome to the show. I hope that my intro was uh, was justifiable. Someone said that any high school student can understand it. I try to avoid every single technical word uh, so that it's easily understandable. I think one of the pieces that I I kept writing down in the book as I was going through it in my notes is this this communication that's going on is, is that these are intelligent organisms, blood cells, T cells, all the different terminology that you drop in and that makes up the composition of our body. They're intelligently engaging in these sort of non-autonomous activities. They're actively doing things that need to be done, which is sort of the basis of our life. It's not just that they're not just randomly doing things. Well, I mean, Andy Weil called it a new paradigm for health and disease to understand the fact that cells actually are talking and very intelligent and are constantly communicating. I, I was, I, I'm not a businessman. I'm a, I'm a doctor. I've worked in hospitals for many, many years. And I was very surprised that Harvard Business Review uh, liked my book because they said it proved that um, the mind is the body and the body is the mind. And that's because all the cells, everyone knows that neurons talk to each other in circuits. I mean, kids are taught that, that we have these brain circuits and they send neurotransmitters, they send signals. But no one really thinks about the fact that that same kind of communication is occurring with every single cell all the time. And that um, you can't just look at the kidney and study the kidney. If you want to know something about the kidney, you have to realize the kidney cell is talking to the local uh, stem cell, to the blood vessel cell. They're sending signals all around the body to immune cells. They're calling for them. They're traveling through the body. Uh, Most shocking is the tremendous amount of communication going on between the brain and the immune system. That's the most research has been done on that. Uh, I can give you some examples of that. So for example, uh, the T cell is the master immune cell. If you have an infection, the local cells try to handle it. They call for the T cell. The T cell comes and then takes over and sort of directs everyone and tells everyone what to do. Uh, But no one knew that the T cell has anything to do with the brain because it was thought there was no immune activity in the brain other than a natural occurring brain cell called the microglia that, that lives in the brain and went there from the fetus and stayed there ever since. But in actual fact, there are a large number of T cells that go into the fluid surrounding the brain and they're sending signals constantly to the brain. And so one example would be um, when we're sick, uh, the T cell tells the neuron to create the sick feeling. We know, all know what the sick feeling is. We feel lousy, we wanna lie down, uh, we feel you know, feverish, weak. And the reason why we have to lie down is the T cell wants to save the energy to fight with the infection. 
So it sends a direct signal to the neuron that you have to get rid of normal cognition. You have to lower cognition and create the sick feeling. And when we're better, only the T cell can tell the neuron to stop the sick feeling and then continues to send pulses, signals, keep normal cognition going. Uh, another example of the brain immune thing is that uh, it's now known that a trillion cells are made in the fetus and it's pruned down to about, uh, almost 100 billion. And then almost no new cells are made, about 1,000 every day in the brain. And half of them are in the memory center and half in the nose. So our nose kind of replenishes with new smells, but the, the memory centers, this, these, new, these 500 new cells are associated with new memories. So we have a new memory. The old memory said there was a car there. The new memory says, no, that was a red Chevy, very more specific. And the new cell is associated with the, with the new recall, the bringing up of that memory and laying down a new memory. So when in normal life, the signals from the T cell are saying, keep everything going. But when we get depressed in depression, um, for whatever reason, the T cell tells the, uh, the, uh, the brain cell to lower these new neurons. And as a result of lowering the new neurons, we get that brain fog and we feel the brain fog. We also get that with, with stress. So for example, you have short-term stress, you actually can do better. You actually have more, more memory cells uh, for a little while. And then if the stress continues and it gets uh, debilitating and tiring, then um, the T cell says, lower the new memory cells and you have that brain fog again. And again, when anything cures depression, walking in the woods, psychotherapy, meditation, drugs, whatever, medi I mean, medications, whatever cures the depression, the T cell says, now it's time increase the memory cells again. Um, Let's, if we may go back for a minute, because I, I love, I love the <clears throat> paradigm shift in, and how we think about things. So yesterday, Lisa and I went for a really long hike. We were in the woods. We were out in the sun all day long. And when, when I was driving home, I noticed for whatever reason, because I hadn't been out in the sun in, in some time actually, because we've been working so many hours, that my body really felt lethargic and sort of gasping for energy. So are you saying that internally something was going on? Something was what was that? You? Something was going on inside our body, and there was a communication going on that was sort of an internal dialogue. They were sort of talking behind my body's back, saying, "Hey, this dude's been out in the sun. He's been exercising and hiking for a while. We should probably make him go down and lay down for a bit." Yes, the cells are constantly talking. Everything occurs through actual signals. The signals can be we mo we know most about molecules. So we send these molecules either through the tissue or into the blood that goes to a faraway place. But the messages can be electric. The messages can be through little tubes that they go between the cells. The messages can be little sacs. Uh, they create sacs filled with molecules and they send these sacs uh, to cells. Cancers love these sacs uh, to create metastasis, for example. That's how they communicate with their community Again, a cancer cell is, is like a microbe. It's one of a community that are communicating, defending each other, sending messages back and forth. They send resistance genes to avoid medications. Cancers are talking among themselves, just like our cells. Now, everyone knows now, we knew that microbes uh, 
sent signals about 30 years ago, but we didn't understand the significance of microbes until recently because of the science is getting more detailed. We now know everywhere you read, microbes are affecting, affecting us in various ways, obesity, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. But no one thinks about why. Why is that happening? Well, because the microbes speak cells speak the same language as our cells. So therefore, they can manipulate the communications going on with our cells and they can become part of the conversation. And they are part of the conversation for many things like chronic pain, for example, are large circuits, not just neurons, but neurons with other brain cells, with T cells, even microbes skin cells, gut cells are all part of these circuits that are communicating that create chronic pain syndromes as well. Um, let, me, let me give you one more example. So I told you how T cells can talk to neurons, but neurons talk right back to T cells. So neurons can create inflammation and they can help inflammation. They can affect any kind of inflammation. So we knew for a long time that meditation helps by affecting the vagus nerve which then lowers the heart rate, lowers the breathing, and relaxes the GI tract. But no one ever can figure out, well, how can it help immunity? How can meditation affect immunity? Well, when we realized these neuroimmune conversations, we learned that that same vagus nerve in the spleen can improve, uh, can send signals and improve immune status. And the more you meditate, the greater the immune status is. It also shows how acupuncture works, which is brand new. No one understood how acupuncture could work because in the West, we think of it as an energy flow. And what's an energy flow? We don't know. It's either a nerve or a blood vessel, but these acupuncture points weren't near either. So the point is they found by triggering a particular acupuncture point with electricity, what they noticed with, again, a very difficult science to look underneath and see a cell, they found a T cell sitting there that was triggered by the acupuncture, then traveled over a little ways, and then signaled into the neuron, which then went round through the body and affected the, the, the spleen on the other side of the, of the body. You, do, you hit the wrist. So that's, again, these circuits explain a lot about what's going on. So in essence, by this electric signal, electronic signal that we were triggering and the T-cell responding, we were interjecting our own version of communication to it externally so that we could exacerbate its communication? Is that sort of what you're saying? It's astounding that um, everything responds to the environment and perception, our perception is the most powerful stimulus. In fact, the most powerful stimulus for the immune system is loneliness. And it, you can do research, like you take a, a bee and you put a bee in a new hive. Within a moment, 500 genes are different just from the different environments. Same is true with us. We Something changes on the outside. It's affecting genes all the way through the immune system. All these cells are changing. And what happens is that new uh, immune signals are, are going, that uh, perceptions create that. We have no idea, by the way, how mental events, subjective... Science doesn't know what subjective experience is. Science doesn't know what consciousness is. There's no definition of intelligence. There's no definition for any of this. So we don't have any idea how our subjective experience affects these cells, but they do. That, that much we know. And they not only affect the cell, but they dramatically change the communication, the genes. At every level, it's affecting them. 
I'm reading in Thomas Campbell's book right now, My Big Toe, Theory of Everything. I'm sure you've read it. He talks just about that, how we're now starting to understand that the universe, our bodies, everything is all, A, interconnected, but B, it's both a subjective and an objective experience. It sort of sounds something similar to what you're getting at right now. We have no science because we can't define (laughs) intelligence, consciousness, subjective experience. A lot of scientists think, say it doesn't exist, but that's crazy. We just don't have a science that includes subjective experience at this point. At some point, there will be. And it'll, that, it'll also include quantum mechanics and chemistry and, and chemical reactions and cells and all that. But right now, studying the cells, we can see how intelligent they are. That's what I thought was very important to know, because the intelligence actually, I think, goes through all the levels. And that's what I'm writing about now is how it goes through it. You know, it's, it's at the brain level, it's at the embryo level, it's at the cell level, but it's actually also at the molecule level. But that is too much for science right now. So So I I love how you've validated everything that perhaps people thought was kind of woo-woo, like meditating and acupuncture and all of that, and you've put the science behind it to back it and help us to understand. But um, just to be a little bit selfish, you were talking about brain fog and, and all of those things, things that all of us experience. So how can some of this research kind of feed back to us understanding that and kind of improving our life by, by understanding what's going on? Yeah, one very important thing is this memory thing, uh, memory cells, uh, which you brought up. So it's been proven now that this new memory cell, again, it, the memory is not a cell and it's not a thing, but it's somehow associated with this cell. And it sort of drives it like a car. You know, it's sort of like that's, that's the physical gadget that the memory is using. And what happens is that um, when we re-remember something, like a trauma, we have a trauma and we re-remember it, what happens is we're actually creating a new memory at that moment that the old memory is still there. It sits there, it's connected with, with circuits and it's, it's alive and functioning. But when we re-remember it, we're laying down a new cell that's gonna create its own connection and eventually take over. And if we, at that moment, before it's reconsolidated that night for sleep, at night it's it, it sleep, consolidates and solidifies the memory. So what we do is we add affirmations. We add positivity, like what's happened that's good in your life since the trauma. What, uh, you know, you have a new love, you're in therapy, you're doing this, you know, you're active, blah, 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 whatever. We add a little element to that memory. We then soften the trauma just a little bit and you can keep doing that. You can keep softening the trauma by using the natural process of the consolidation of memory. Does, sorry, does that, I'm interrupting you, does that help in, in the research of anything with dementia or, or anything like that, that well, understanding that? The word that's used widely. Now, that happens to be my specialty. I'm a geriatric specialist, so I was actually president of that association. And I can tell you definitively as a national expert, we don't have a clue of what's going on. What we do know is that it's not normal. Normal aging, if you use your brain, the brain is extremely active. And if an elderly person uses their brain during their whole life and is engaged in meaningful activity, they build their brain. 
and it's much better. They have more circuits to the frontal lobe, more between the right and the left. It's a much better brain, except for word finding. Word finding does go down naturally, but pattern recognition, what we used to call wisdom, is all there. A certain percentage of people have diseases. One of the diseases is cardiovascular disease, where you get sludge in your vessels by not eating well or through genetical uh, genetics, or, you know, various reasons. But food diet is huge in, in, in vascular disease. Obviously, eating good food makes a huge difference. And cells have to clean out any crap we eat, like all the chemicals that we eat. The cells have to deal with that. And they don't even, these are chemicals they've never even seen before. They're in nature. They're brand new chemicals. So they don't know what the hell to do with those. But in any case, there is a disease um, called Alzheimer's, which actually is probably five diseases. And... You know, I could go on and on about that, but the truth is we don't know what it is. The people who are doing the amyloid theory <laughs> taken over and dominated it and sort of limited the research. But inflammation is very important. There are many other things. And the tau is very important. So this new drug that they have is virtually useless, and all the drugs are useless because they've limited the research in a very narrow-minded way based on financial, like you said, financial reasons. Uh, but the bottom line is that's a disease, and... Thus far, we have no treatment for that disease, and a certain percentage of people will get that. Some people with a gene related to cholesterol and how cholesterol travels, and cholesterol sits in the membrane and it cuts a protein, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so uh, all of that, and that's what creates the amyloid plaques. Um, anyway, um, there are others, though. There's frontal lobe dementia. There's five different kinds of dementia, and there's probably five different kinds of Alzheimer's disease, but that's a... That's a, a that's not most people. That's not most elderly people. And the one thing we can do is live clean and avoid the cardiovascular, the what's called the multi-infarct dementia, which are really tiny strokes throughout the book. So I, I want to go back to the new memory for a minute. But before you do, so if I understand disease like Alzheimer, it's five disease, I get all that. But if we're studying how cells communicate and... Are we able, as as your research and, and our knowledge increases based upon things like you and others in your field are doing, as we increase our ability to understand and comprehend how the cells communicate, will the science from treating things shift more into the communication aspect by yes. us being able to interject new communication signals into the cells to tell them to do something? Exactly. Well, that's why Andy Wiles says this is the new paradigm for health and disease, because if you're going to study something, you don't just study the kidney. You have mm -hmm. to study the, co the communication about the cells. It's more complicated, but at least we know where to look now. And it is being done. Like all the new cancer treatments are based upon signals, so it's communication. That what we do is we take a little virus and we redesign it and we send that based upon the natural communication that's going on with that virus and the cancer. We send the natural communication between a microbe uh, and we manipulate that. Those are all the new drugs are that. Uh, so the future of all health is in this communication. Absolutely. And that's why it's so important that people start thinking about this. And it, I thought the book would help people understand what the, what the most advanced new forms of medicine are, like cancer treatments, by reading that chapter on, on cancer. We, we, we hear a lot, especially in the medical field, and 
this is not an insult to anybody in particular, just in general, a lay person's observation, especially given the climate that we're in right now. It seems like we spend a lot of energy and resources and money, which drives more money for certain pockets of people to create these cures that are all pharmaceutical based and science based. Why are we not? Because you just talked about it a second ago, meditating, eating healthy, exercising, all these things that we know add to our, our, our health. Why are those not being heavily promoted right now in this bed of... of well, you said it. How do you make money off that? I mean, the only way you make money off is just having competing yoga studios, which is kind of <laughs> stupid to begin with. The whole idea of yoga is not to be competing like that. But so anyway, um, so what they say about science is a new theory comes up. Is that you? Uh, no, it's me. I can't you. figure out how to get rid of it. I've tried my... <laughs> Let me interject some communication <laughs> cells into it. <laughs> I'm going to inject some communication signals into your system there. Hold I can't on. figure out how to get ready. It's okay. It's fine. Just carry on. <laughs> anyway, so, I mean, I've tried. I've gone through notifications a million different ways. Anyway, uh, I, I love, sorry. sorry. I keep thinking it's like a signal. Harvard, Yale, and still. And things tough. like that. Well, you know what my daughter said? She introduced me at my birthday party saying, you know, my father reads quantum mechanics and uh, molecular biology, but he can't program his cell phone. Uh, you know, this is, this is typical. I turned to my daughter to do that. Anyway, so um, what were we talking about? Oh, we, uh, we were talking about the future of medicine and how everything oh, is based upon pharmaceutically. A new theory like this arises and which shows intelligence in nature, <clears throat> which most scientists don't like. They like some random thing. And random is runs the show, and they run the grants. They run all the committees. So whenever a grant comes up, it's the same crowd, like in Alzheimer's. It's always this amyloid crowd that are making decisions about where to spend the money, and they're not spending on on, on inflammation and on other things that would help tremendously, or lifestyle changes, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, so what happens is the older professors dig in and go to their death defending their wrong theory and the young take on the new the new young scientists take it on and then eventually the old ones die and then the theory becomes uh, normalized so that's what's happening the whole old narrow darwinian frame of evolution is going out but no you know you can't they won't stop the, the idea of intelligence in nature it kind of changes it a little bit because the intelligence in cells affect evolution just like you know anyone would think it would so um anyway so that's how it works in business they just want to make the money and they want to keep their grants in their ideas which all their stuff is invested in their labs are all invested in this track but really it should be this track now so uh, you know it's like anything money money talks yeah you talk a little bit about how these cellular conversations are related to the emergence of intelligence and consciousness. I explain that to us in a, in a and I understand what you're saying, but explain that to how, how can a cellular conversation and the, the workings of our mitochondria and our blood cells, how does that relate to intelligence and consciousness on a larger macro scale? Well, you'll notice I didn't mention that in the book. I just, what I did is I just, went to that level of cells and wrote just drew a, a picture a panoramic picture of life as a cell mm -hmm. talking here talking here moving there this that you know just like a person so i made a, i try to make a visual 
presentation of that world so that anyone would realize that this is not at all random. This is communication going on. And the um, it used to be that the definitely, it's almost impossible to define life, by the way. Zimmer has a wonderful book on that. Every single way to define it is completely shot down. We have no idea what life is. That's also like consciousness. We have no idea what the kind. Like you say, it's it's the ability to reproduce. Well, does that mean someone seventy isn't alive? I mean, does that mean a neuron that's old isn't alive? I mean, obviously that's not it. But there are many ways that the definitions are wrong. Uh, is a virus alive? Well, I think it's alive, and I show in my book uh, demonstrations of the lifestyle viruses. Now viruses communicate also, they're part of the conversation. That's a whole subject we can talk about, but I include that in the book. And there's a lot more on my website about the community at the intelligence of viruses and how important they are to us. They're not all negative, by the way, half of our genes are from viruses and the placenta is from the virus. And there's all kinds of the brain. A lot of the brain is from viruses they bring information. They bring genes. They can also be terrible as we know. Uh, so the thing is, the idea is that it, biologists like to define life as a cell that has metabolism and can reproduce. Well, I'm adding to that also intelligent communication. So that adds a whole dimension, really. I mean, that adds. So that means life includes intelligent. Now, I deliberately did not draw any speculative conclusions because I don't I made a vow not to speculate because I think that this new way of looking at life can be proven with existing science without any need for speculation and it, so that's what I'm doing I'm just taking the top science from nature magazine science magazine the top articles and reviews and translating that into simple English showing how intelligent nature is and how intelligent now the book is all about the cellular level it goes a little bit deeper into compartments of the cell you mentioned mitochondria that's a compartment but it was a cell once a mitochondria but there's even smaller compartments that are intelligent uh and even I, I i throw a teaser in at the end of the book which is a molecule that's intelligent because i feel I'm going to show in my next book how molecules are intelligent as well. And that's a mind boggling thing for current day scientists. They don't like that uh, because it, it, it means intelligence is we have to define it one day. We have to include a science that incorporates. Right now, science does not include consciousness, does not include mind, does not include intelligence, does not include any of this. And they can't even define life. Um, so, so you're you're obviously a learned man. You're well educated, multiple degrees, multiple medical degrees, advanced psychology or a psychiatrist. You worked, you've written books, all these sorts of things. What do you think? What do you think is the point of all this? Where did we come from? What's your opinion on it? You talk about this this mystical, subjective awareness that we're now starting to dive into and starting to understand. So, so where did humans come from? What are we? If I had an answer for that, I'd be sitting in the Himalayas and probably wouldn't tell you. I'd be sitting there and meditating and uh, you'd come and ask me and I'd say mm, something like that. I, I uh, What are your thoughts around it? I'm just curious because this is something that we've been talking about a lot in some of our circles. I'm just curious what your, what your thoughts are. Well, I'm trying to show that subjective experience is real that a new science has to include subjective experience as well as quantum mechanics and chemical biology, et cetera, that intelligence exists throughout nature, in plants, 
in insects, in animals, everywhere you look, cells. But see, I picked cells because that's pretty deep into it. Uh, and that's the one area I could show. You know, you ask a scientist, is, is a dog smart or is a bee smart? And they go into all kinds of, you know, contortions. Of course they are. I mean, bees speak symbolic logic. They speak language. They communicate. They send information. They travel five miles and know every single flower and they know how to get to where. They're very intelligent. Ants are intelligent. But plants, I wrote a lot about plants. But cells is really deep. And that's where I picked to show. So reading my book, I don't say they're intelligent. I just say this is what they're doing. And you decide yourself. I mean, but it's pretty obvious to anyone that they're intelligent if you just look at what they're doing. And the same for viruses. And there's no explanation for that. So to me, I made a vow not to speculate. You're asking me to speculate. I guess I can speculate. So, I mean, to me, that my speculation is that that intelligence, mind, exists throughout nature and goes all the way down to electrons into below electrons into the into the soup into the quantum soup uh and that it's 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 a it's a basic part of matter and energy it's Uh it's it's integrally part of science of Uh of things scientific of physics i I see where you're going with it i i don't disagree with that and i I, not that my opinion matters but i think it's it, it's for me. It boils down to has to be a combination of all of that, both spiritual, mystical, subjective, objective. It all sort of has to interrelate in some way. No different than our the symbiosis of the planet and all of our bodies and the plants and all that sort of stuff. It just sort of seems to make a direct correlation it's to really me. Amazing. You get a perception at the human level, and immediately it affects all kinds of cells all through your body and they're and it affects their genes and it goes way way deep into the cell into the molecule the dna to the molecule surrounding the dna triggering the dna and they create 200 new signals from immune cells just from a perception of loneliness so our human perception is highly connected to all these other layers of uh and i chose to describe the cellular layer because that's what people understand involving health. And uh, I think it'd be useful for people to realize where science is really at. No, I, I love, I love the marriage of the two. Uh, what you just said is very thoughtful too. If our mind is in a good place, what, what, what does that entail then as well on our bodies? So, so to me, there are certain things you need to do for your mind. It's an organ like, any organs, you have to keep it healthy. So obviously sleep is very important because the neurons shrink in half and then a, a flow takes away the molecules, the, the, the clusters of molecules that create dementia. So sleep is, is vital. Sleep is when we reconsolidate those memories. So sleep is very, very important, much more important than everyone supposed. Eating is important. The cells have to deal with all the crap we eat. So these little cells have all kinds of debris that they have to deal with and they have to detoxify stuff that they, so processed food is, is lousy for cells. It just it creates havoc in the cells. Um, the other thing is perhaps most important is how we use our mind. 
because the way we use our mind creates the circuits. It's extremely active and dynamic. You think this way, it creates this way. So exercise is really important because it creates, when you exercise, it creates afterwards for hours, a moment of neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is like when uh, new things can happen in the brain, new developments can occur. So for example, you take a mouse and you exercise him, and then right after that, you give him cocaine, he'll become addicted much more quickly because he's learning faster, but he'll also learn uh, other things. He'll learn, a human will learn art or music or philosophy better also in that period of, uh, of neuroplasticity. A recent study showed that that my theory is correct in that he proved recently, just weeks ago, that the muscle cell in exercise sends a signal in a in a sends a micro RNA, a little RNA in a, in a in a in a little sac, and it goes to the fat cell, and the fat cell takes in this information, and because of that, it eliminates some fat. So then that's happening through communication. Uh, so exercise, moderate exercise where you don't injure yourself is like really important. And then most of all is how we use our brain, like what we focus on. So it's very important that we, like people say, well, should I do crossword puzzles? I say, there's nothing wrong with crossword puzzles. That's great, you'll be better at crossword puzzles, but that's not necessarily gonna help your brain. What you need to do is find something meaningful so that let me give you an example. So you're a high jumper and you're going to jump. And instead, just before you jump, you visualize it. You're sitting there visualizing the high jump and that will improve your jump 30%. But if during that visualization of the jump, your eyes are closed, you're imagining jumping, you go like this as you jump, it increases at 45%. Well, what does that mean? That means that the visualization is creating a circuit in the brain that improves your the action. But if you include the muscle cells in that circuit, that's even greater. And that's why some activities that include movement, thought, intention, that's why music is so important because music, you know the meaning of the song, you know the melody, you know the singers, you know the history of the singers. You know the beat and you're moving your body, you're dancing, you're with friends, you know where you are, you're having a great time. Spiritual music is even greater because here you have all of that plus your whole spiritual thing is happening. So what that does is creates a huge circuit in the brain that becomes better, becomes stronger. And that's called neuroplasticity. It's building new brain circuits. So what we want to do is find meaningful activity. It can be charity, it can be business, it can be anything we love, but you have to be dedicated, motivated into it. And that will build new and better brain circuits. And we have a choice of thinking about negative stuff or thinking about positive stuff. And I mean, clearly meditation is very good for the brain. That's a start, but then you have to have meaningful activity on top of that. And then you already mentioned this, but for some reason, nature, being in nature is extremely important for the brain. If you put on a little beanie, that's an EEG machine, electroencephalograph, and you walk through nature, you're already meditating. You're already meditating as far as the brain's concerned. Mm -hmm. In a hospital bed, you put a little flower, they're much better off. 
if you have an apartment and you look down the street and you see a tree, you're much better off walking in the nature. Now, I could philosophize that we're complementary to plants and that historical evolution, uh, CO2 and O2, you know, a yin and yang. But I don't know why, but that may be why. But the truth is, it, it, it is. In other words, being in nature is one of those vital things along with sleep, food, meaningful activity, neuroplasticity, re-remembering, getting rid of, you know, slowly getting rid of trauma uh, and nature. Those would say, I, I say those are the essential uh, lessons and essential important things for the brain. I love how you validated all these things that we hear with that backing of science behind it too. That's brilliant. I saw a fantastic, I think it was probably on Instagram or maybe somebody else showed it to me, but it was a, a I think the term is limbic. It was a limbic system of the root structure of a tree and our, our interior, our interior arterial structure and sort of the root structure going out and distributing all over the body and then through the soil and how largely similar the two were to each other. It just sort of was really, it was a really astounding image to see. Um, I want to go back to one more question as we're running out of time, but you said something about new memories. Do, do new memories, or let me rephrase, how much do new memories that we take on use the context of existing old memories, memories to shape the paradigm of what the new memory in the context looks like? Well, it adds. So there's a difference between a new thing and a re-remembering. In other words, we've had experiences and we literally re-remember it. You know, where was I? What was going on? What happened? And we have an, an, a memory that includes some visuals, some sound, some smells, some whatever. They're, they're, it's not a complete story. It, it's just uh, a scene, you know, some kind of, you're in the middle of some kind of scene. And so now you add a re-remembering, you add details. You say, well, but she really meant that, not this. And that car was really this, not that. I, you know, I really didn't like that house. I mean, I, you know, so you add to that, and then that becomes a current memory, a new memory. The old one's still there, but it fades, and this new one is stronger. And then if you do it again and again, you can keep changing it, changing the memory. Now, that's different than a completely new situation. Now, the brain doesn't like new situations. It's, as a matter of fact, it, it, this is very counterintuitive, but the brain works on expectation. So I don't know. So do you, I. What's that? <laughs> so do I. Yeah, the brain <laughs> things and it'll start the perception as that, even though it's wrong, and then say, wow, wait a minute, this is not, okay, I have to change that, I have to change that. And so then, then it changes to the, to the new thing. There's a famous study of, you have people staring at a musical, a dance event. You have a group dancing on a stage. And then in the middle of the stage, you have a man dressed in a gorilla suit walk across the stage. No one notices the gorilla because who expects a gorilla to walk across the stage? So that's how memory is faulty in that way. In other words, it, uh, it, it's largely expect. So we have sensory data coming in. And it's going up the spine into the higher centers, but there's much more action coming down from the higher centers, manipulating that, that visual, that auditory, that sensory 
we're manipulating that and we really determine what we see in large ways and we only see what we want to see everyone knows that so it's like observation bias is what you're saying at least yeah, yeah. so it's not so much is it really is it really a memory i guess it becomes once you observe something it becomes a memory it's a memory that's a right. new memory and then it may conflict with an old memory so, so so not to go geopolitical here, but it's sort of why we're in this didactic, opinionated version of reality that we live in right now, where some people believe this and some people believe that, and you've got this polarization going on. It's all because of our obser- observation bias on what we, what we've, our context has fed us up until this point. It's the observation bias that was always there, but it's amplified by the social media. I think it's amplified by our availability of instant information about everything that's happening in the globe. So, so, so taking what you know and what you're talking about in this book, right or wrong or indifferent, I'm not getting at that. How, how would, how could one who has an observation bias about a particular opinion of something, how could you most efficiently alter that observation bias so that their paradigm of what they thought was was fact, based upon their memory and observation, was suddenly shifted? Well, you're asking to solve the racial nationalistic problems that exist where we don't like foreigners, we don't like strangers, we don't like this, we don't like that. Um, It's hard. Uh, The person has to be very centered, be very neutral. It's like mindfulness. You have to be neutral and learn how to take in new information and, and see what your first reaction is. Uh, first reactions are very important. Uh, so a lot of prejudice, like your first smell, your first kiss, the first childhood memories have tremendous impact uh, years later, unless you work on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, the first whatever, uh, it, you know, the smells of your mother, the smells of the kitchen, the smells of, of your family, uh, are very, very significant uh, in determining and gossip. A first impression is very hard to get rid of, even if it's completely wrong. And that's why all this social media craziness is not good uh, because it it hurts a lot of people because they get a false impression put out there and it's impossible to change it. Uh, Part of my next book includes the fact that we have a super organism going on now. We're like a cell in a superorganism called the internet. <laughs> and um, that is another organism. Uh, that's another level that we're, you know, there's the human level, there's the brain circuit level, there's the embryo level, there's the uh, cellular level, there's the molecular level, but there's also from our brain, there's the interactive level. And now it's been codified into uh, a thing that just has a life of its own. And uh, so, uh, I would include that as part of the continuum now of, of, of the interactions. Codified into, what do you mean by that? So it's sort of become part of the... Col- well, part of the destroyed with a nuclear war, it'll go away. Uh, but it, but it's, it's become codified in terms of it's sort of become part of our collective consciousness now. Well, you think about what is culture and what is science. It's basically... Science is basically, I see this. Do you agree? We both see this. 
we see this? We did this, we did this, and this is what happened? They say, yes, that's it. That's all science is. It's an agreed upon uh-huh. observation. Uh-huh. And culture is the same thing. We put out something, other people have availability to it. So there's some, there's a concept that consciousness is rising over time. Like, for example, certain discoveries in science are made in different places of the world at the same, like Newton and Leibniz both discovered calculus at the same moment without knowing each other. Uh, and that happens a lot sort of simultaneously. Like the, the, the mind of the, of, the, of the humans are ready for some new uh, discovery. But this could all be wiped out very easily with a nuclear war. I mean, uh, if you wipe out technology, we'd be back to science in the Middle Ages where it still exists, but only certain people are aware of it. You know, and those who read are aware of it. Now you don't have to read. You don't have to do anything. You're part of it no matter what. And it's it's like the hive. In other words, there's the bees who are very intelligent. I just mentioned everything I said about a bee was the individual bee. But then there's the hive that's also very intelligent, more so. There's the ant. The individual ant knows 50 different ways to get around and can learn new ways. But the ant hive is even more intelligent. So there's the hive intelligence. There's the individual intelligence. We have the human intelligence. And now we have the Internet intelligence or the Internet lack of intelligence. You are you're someone who I wish was my next door neighbor, so I could just sit it uh, sit in evenings and have conversations with. There's so many questions that I'm fascinated by with what you're doing, and just to hear you break it down, it makes it so much more understandable. Unfortunately, we're running out of time, so I think for me, my 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 biggest takeaway from this is the 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 concept of continuing to learn something, continuing to be involved in something that you're passionate about, educated, educating yourself, etc. And in so doing, we can continue to sort of in, keep our internal and our external bodies in check and growing and evolving and et cetera, correct? Absolutely. That builds the brain and builds new capacities for learning and for experiencing. I was I was thinking about the best way to introduce you uh, at the outset of the show and the book itself and, and sort of my my interpretation of it. You've done a really fantastic job of breaking it down into a normalized conversation, but it almost reads like a science fiction novel in some ways. Some of the parts of it, it's like you have the good guys and the bad guys, and you've got organelles, and you've got the fighters, and you've got troops over here, and you've got people, and the body's sort of in this constant yin and yang with itself to try to figure shit out. It's pretty fascinating to read. If you look at the back cover, there was a famous um, author of – Nonfiction. Who says that as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, when I read it, I was like, "Oh my God, that's a, he's exactly right." Or she, whoever read it, I remember saying that. I thought the same thing. It's like, it's sort of, it's like, um, I'm not much into um, comic strips, but like Marvel cartoon comic strip. There's like this constant symbiotic organisms just engaging with each other in all these different plateaus and levels. It's pretty fantastic. And we're a, we're a result of that. I know it's, it's crazy. Um, you heard me drop it. I'm not doing this a name drop, but I'm reading this. Uh, you're familiar with Tom Campbell, my my big toe of the book. Sure. Oh my God, this book is blowing my way, my mind away. And he talks a lot of the things that you talk about in your book on that cellular level right now. So it's really fantastic how your book came into my space, and now this book's coming into my space. Which, by the way, I don't think is accidental. I think it's all part of our sort of like internal manifestations. But anyway, I digress. Anything you'd like to add? No, it's just opened up so many other questions and so much thought-provoking. I think there's there's going to be more um, more thought put behind some of the things that, that people say and, mm-hmm. and 
backing it up. It's not just woo-woo. Mm-hmm. Well, the book is called The Secret Language of Cells, and John Leaf has been our guest today. And uh, the, the cover is what biological conversations tell us about the brain-body connection, the future of medicine, and life itself. And I'm fascinated by this future of medicine conversation. It's something that uh, I'm, I'm watching very closely as we're kind of going through the space that we are right now. It's interesting to see what comes, comes of all this. But Can I just mentioned that I'm very active on Twitter. And so it's John Leaf, MD, it's at John Leaf, MD, J-O-N. And my website is Searching for the Mind. But um, you people are great. If you want to talk more, I'd be delighted. So I have your cell phone number. Don't give me that opportunity because I'll blow you up. I have so <laughs> many questions that I'm fascinated by. My email. Okay. You can call on the cell phone, but uh, you can email as well. All right. John, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Well, you let me know when it goes live. I'm going to put it out on Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, so Shy, um, once it, once we finish the recording, Shy will take it from there, and then Dallas is our producer. He puts everything together. It usually comes out in about four weeks or so, I think we're looking at. All right, so my email is Leaf at AOL. Got it. Yeah, we. I think we have everything, right? Right. You, you're getting our emails from Shy and stuff, right? Correct. Okay, cool. All right, I appreciate your time. Thank you, John. Thank Very you so nice. much. Have a great day. Bye. Would you like to close this down with some thoughts? He's. I just put him back in the green room. Are you blown away? I am blown away. I, I couldn't, I felt like I was, it was like a, a, well, it's obviously a page turner. It was one of those movies that you just wanted to hear every word and you're hanging on to hear what the next thing was and how it was all connecting. I didn't get a chance to ask him. You saw I had like 26 questions I was going to ask him. Yeah, and you were writing more Oh my down. God, I know. So one of the things that I was fascinated about is he was talking about, so he, his background is geriatric psychiatry. Um, so we, um, I don't know if that means he was working in hospitals or nursing homes, but his, his field of study, mm-hmm. and, and then he went back to school and did some other things. But I wanted to hear a little bit more about how he got into actually studying this sort of stuff, and how does one even go into that? So you just wake up one morning and be like, hey, I'm going to study this and that I guess it's fascinating to me the pathway that his life has taken him mm-hmm. and acquiring minds want to know yeah it's pretty fascinating stuff alright anyway this has been a fun podcast I didn't get to ask him half of what I wanted to but the Secret Language of Cells by John Leaf uh, it sounds like he wants you to find him on Twitter at John Leaf and looking forward for this podcast to come out for the rest of the masses to hear alright gonna close this out with anything else are you done um, yeah, I just think that if anyone wants to hear more, you can connect with us on your Instagram at Fusion Photog, my Instagram at Lisa Staff Photo, or at Sprout Connectors. Right, cool. Also on YouTube, Mind Body Business. That's right. All right then. Good, good show. Thanks.